0: Welcome to the Open Church Podcast, a place for disciples to be made. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Open Church Podcast number 11, Robert. We've done 11 episodes, or we will by the time this one's done. That's impressive. I've I've read that most shows make it to like episode seven, and then they just burn out. So we're already way ahead of the pack, and I'm very excited thus far.
1: I mean, that's all because of you. If it was up to me, we probably would have burnt out already. So, I mean, <laughs> kudos to you first.
0: It's a team effort, man. Because uh, if if I'm just sitting here talking into my mic, which I can do, that's fine. But it's not nearly uh, it's not nearly the product that it is. It's not nearly as helpful without uh, someone to bounce thoughts of thoughts off of. Excuse me. Anyways, anyways, it's uh, it's it's late in the week. I don't know what you guys want from me. Sometimes my, my mouth doesn't work the way it should. Today, we are talking about a topic that I love to talk about. And, and that is stuff Christians believe that isn't in the Bible and there are so many of these it just drives me nuts so I've, I've put together a list of uh, of four that I want to go over and and Robert and I typically don't talk specifically about what we're going to say before the shows um so I'm very curious to see what you're gonna say Robert like what and I mean as a pastor I'm sure there's a lot of things that maybe don't occur to a lot of people that you, um, are just so annoyed by <laughs> um so so let's dive right into why don't why don't you give us the first one um I, I'm, I'm assuming you have multiple so so tell me like what what do you see that a lot of Christians believe that has no biblical basis whatsoever
1: well here's a non-controversial one to just start us right <laughs> off and I just of course um, hell hell is something that is really something interesting if you look at biblical hell versus even what the listener would be understanding of hell. Um, I'm just going to give a couple of examples. The listener can always uh, ask for more if they want to or um, research this themselves. Uh, Mark 9, uh, Matthew 25, both very good examples of how hell punishment, uh, damnation, And whenever it comes up, whenever Jesus is talking about hell, he is always talking about those who think they are in the kingdom of God and don't really care. They're not actually pursuing the kingdom of God. They could be pursuing self-righteousness, as in with the Pharisees, multiple times throughout the Gospels. Or Matthew 25 is a very interesting one, talking about the apathy of the believer. Um, And this is where a lot of the weeping, gnashing of teeth, uh, you know, go away from me. I never knew you kind of stuff comes into scripture. And so my pet peeve there is we have made the gospel where it becomes a heaven or hell debate. And we fail to look at how hell is actually used in scripture and what it's actually talking about. That's not me saying there's not a hell. There is. And that's not uh, me saying that it's not about um, eternal, uh, as, as the phrase would be used, damnation. What bothers me and what is not in the Bible is how hell is manipulated to make people make emotional decisions instead of decisions based on faith, based on um, even reasoning, although there is still a faith component to our faith. You cannot outreason somebody with faith. So at some point, they have to make a decision that they're going to believe something. They're going to put their faith into something, right? But hell as a manipulative device really bothers me. Okay, I started off with a nice softball. What about you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: We'd, uh, we just dive into it on this show, and that's what I enjoy, is that you go somewhere else. If you want to get your feel goods, uh, we don't do feel goods here. I mean, I guess we have the ultimate feel good in salvation through faith in Jesus, but we're not here to, you know, go to mega church. If you want, uh, if you want fluff, that's, that's really good. I would, I would, before I go on to the next one, I would just add two things and I, it didn't even occur to me to talk about this. So this is a good one. Um, the idea of, hell as a place of literal fire and torture, that's actually not uh, explicitly laid out in the Bible. And and some of the arguments I've heard from scholars center around the idea that like fire and brimstone, all that, that is a metaphor of some sort for what's coming. Um, And it doesn't mean it's pleasant. It means that it's probably far worse than you can imagine. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Cause like the, like language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek or English, there's only, there's like a certain range that your mind can make sense of. And so that's, that's what's in in view there. So, you know, Jesus compares it to like a, like a trash heap, like a burning, smoldering trash heap just outside of Jerusalem and weeping and gnashing of teeth. People take that and they say, people say, oh, well, that's a that's like, that's your reaction to the physical pain you're experiencing and what it probably has more to do with is the shame, you know, the, the um like in that context, that's the ultimate experience of, of being cast out as being um ostracized from the group, right? You, you have failed. You are, you are the lowest of
1: the low kind of a thing. Um Can I interrupt you real quick? Absolutely um, not. <laughs> that means I'm going to do it anyway. So I just want to, and I know you said you had two things that, that you wanted to add there. I want to point the listener to this. If they really want an, a better idea of hell in a somewhat modern context, I say somewhat because this is C.S. Lewis. It's a fictional book. It's called The Last Battle. It's the last book in the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, as most people would call it, but it's actually the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. And that book deals with last things better than almost any other resource I could give because it plays to the imagination and it allows the reader to imagine how do you update, how do you re-gear your mind to think about hell, lostness, and what the real implications are. Okay, sorry, I interrupted long enough. What is your other uh, thing you wanted to add before we move on to one of your pet peeves? I mean, um, things not in the Bible. Oh, they're pet peeves for sure. Um, <laughs> the other, the other one I wanted to add is that
0: this comes more from popular culture, and I think it stems originally from um, the Middle Ages in, in Europe. But it's this idea that hell is the realm of the devil, and uh, you can you can see this in cartoons, for example, going back to the 1950s. Like there's episodes of Tom and Jerry <laughs> where mm, yep. where where Tom dies and he goes to hell. And he's, he's in like a boiling cauldron and there's like a devil dog stabbing him with a pitchfork kind of thing. Um, and that, that's all cartoonish, you know? So it's not like you go to this place and and there's a real bad guy in charge and he's going to torture you for all eternity. Like this is, this is punishment for the devil too. Right. So, (laughs) right, right, right. So, and anyways, you know what, let's do an entire episode on this one day because this is is good, but I'll move on. I'll just, I just wanted to get those out of the way. Okay. My first one is the prosperity gospel. Ooh, boy, we're going, coming out swinging today. Oh man. And you know what? I don't care. You guys, if you don't like what I'm about to say, it's probably because you need to hear what I'm about to say. So briefly put the prosperity gospel, it's taught by um, schmucks like Benny Hinn and Joyce Meyer and uh, Kenneth Copeland, televangelists, right? these, these kind of people. And the, the idea is you give money to the church, more specifically to them. And then God blesses you materially and financially as a result of that. Um, and you won't find this anywhere in the scriptures. It's, you just will not find this, but so many people believe this because it's very appealing because who doesn't want to believe that God loves you so much that he wants you to have a big house and a yacht, you know? Um, And it's, it's preposterous, but I want to, I want to, we can talk about all of these in detail if you want, Robert, but the thing that I would stress is that the Bible promises persecution to Christians, right? So um, Jesus says, speaking, speaking uh, immediately to his disciples, but presumably this applies to to everybody, every Christian, um, he says the world will hate you because they hated me first. He says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. <laughs> and, and as we've talked about before, this is in Matthew 10. He talks about, you know, um, if you choose to follow me, it's quite possible that your own family is going to turn against you. So I think the, and and of course, the the narrow gate and the wide gate, that that metaphor as well. But I think the overall message we get from the New Testament or from the gospel specifically is that. Being a Christian is hard. It's open to everybody. It's a free gift. It's salvation for for anyone who wants it. But it's not going to be easy. And of course, right, you know, the Apostle Paul killed by the Roman Empire. Jesus, of course, crucified. <laughs> uh, Peter. The list goes on and on, right? The the martyrs in the early church. It's it's tremendous. And nowhere in any in any of, of these passages do you see uh, you know, uh, give me your money and then I'll make sure that you get extra rich. You know, it's, it's so basically what I'm saying is it's the, it's the opposite of what the prosperity gospel teaches. It, the Bible teaches literally the exact opposite.
1: Well, and I'll jump in right there because one of the commonly referred to verses in this is Romans eight twenty eight, which I'll read it out of context. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So, Okay. I say I love God, so yeah, I should have that big God. Um, it's interesting, if you put it into context, this is starting in, in there's more context here, but for the quickness of, of our time, Romans 8, verse 26, in the same way, so obviously there's a lot more context there, but this is just a shortened version for us. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unsproken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to their purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, another key subject there, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and though he those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified so if i could just for a moment in context this verse all things work together For my good, I've even heard people misquote this. It is talking about the fact that if you are going to passionately follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about falling off the wagon, so to speak. Because if you keep in pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom and how that manifests, how that works out in your life, he is going to keep you there. But that doesn't mean you can't walk off. Which brings us to one of my pet peeves, Once Saved, Always Saved. Which, if you go to that, and you look at that, I can give you what would be considered proofs for Once Saved, Always Saved. But they're not, whenever you consider the rest of Scripture. Uh, One thing, a couple things that I'd like to point out real quick about the Once Saved, Always Saved is uh, Scriptures like Hebrews Six, four through six, for it is impossible to renew the repentance, those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of his coming age and who have fallen away. Think about what what is being said there that slams in the face of once saved, always saved. So we have Romans 8, taken in context, is if you pursue Jesus, you don't have to worry about your salvation being magically taken away. But if all you are is a cultural Christian and a person who has wandered from their faith, then we've already covered several of these things already going today. Matthew 25, talking about what happens with those who are presumably in the kingdom, but Start becoming indifferent about it. Go read that. Uh, Hebrews 6, like we just read. Hebrews 10 is another one. If we go on sinning, how uh, can Christ be crucified again is basically how it, how it goes there. John 10, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. That's John 10, 27 through uh, 30. Jesus is talking about his sheep hearing his voice and following him. So my point to all of that is, Every scripture uh, that talks about salvation, if you will continue on with that scripture, not just end in the verse, not even end in the chapter sometimes, like in the case of Romans, you will see that salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, results in works. Those works cannot save you. I cannot be a good enough person, of course, but... I will want to follow the master if ever I was in pursuit. And if I walk away, there's a whole other uh, slate of questions that we have to ask about that. Um, So anyway, those interconnected very well, so I wanted to interpose right there. Sorry. No apology required. One
0: other verse I'll throw into the mix, because I think it pertains to what you're saying. It's 1 John 2.19, and it says, uh, They went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us so i think that that sort of speaks to what you're saying that basically if you walk away from it you were, it, it, it never meant anything to you really um and i think it goes to what you were at least implying which is that when you become a christian it changes your heart you you become a new person and you you right, you go down this road of sanctification and the Holy Spirit is with you, this and that, all all the details. Um, but but yeah, you know, if 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 you really believe it, you cannot get away from it, nor would you want to. But if you never really had it in the first place, you know, it, it didn't matter. So I just wanted to throw it in there if you have any comments before we move on.
1: I, I do actually. I have two questions for the For the listener, for you to ponder, for me to ponder, I've pondered these much in my life. One is, is you know, if all this is false, if if you know, I got to the throne and I was just thrown into hell, the lake of fire, using all those terminologies that we just slammed. um, Would would I regret my faith? And the answer is no. I wholeheartedly believe in the Jesus that is laid out in the gospel as revealed by the Holy Spirit that's within within me. I, I believe. Uh, not only do I believe, because demons believe and they tremble, but I, I choose to repeat the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus have your way in me. So that's one thing. The other thing I like to ask, which is a complete, um, you know, in the face of the prosperity idea, prosperity gospel, is this. What if Jesus were to put you in a situation where you wind up in a ditch? And what I mean by that is you're, you're impoverished. Um, maybe you're the guy on the side of the road begging. Is Jesus still worth following, even if that's your condition? Now, here's why I ask it that way. Because in third world conditions, in some of the poorest areas of, of the world, Christianity, following Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, is said the loudest and proudest in some of those situations, where persecution is some of the toughest. So one must consider, especially from first world conditions that we live in, if that were us... Is Jesus still worth following? And there's actually scriptural precedent for this. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.20, the context around there. 1 Corinthians 12.23, the context around there. Both of these talking about um, vessels in a house that are honored and dishonored. And 1 Corinthians 12.23 is really fascinating because it's talking about um, the members and parts of our body that are honored and dishonored and talking about the things that are quote-unquote dishonored, and think about genital parts, private parts, right? We actually show them more honor. And so what is the point of all of this? Is that the writers are actually showing us and telling us through examples that were contextually relevant of their day, that indeed, just because you think you're a failure, just because you think that you're not prosperous, just because you think that, oh, I follow Jesus, but it looks like everything's turning poorly right now the story's not over from your perspective you have no idea how god is actually using this for his good and for your good and to for the uh the story of redemption to take place in people around us so just some stuff i wanted to add there right uh and and i'm almost becoming preaching so uh i think it's time to turn it over back to you
0: Okay, my second one is as follows: Jesus, the nice guy. <laughs> and uh, I can't stand this. this this assumption or this this, yeah, it is an assumption, I guess is the best way to put it. And it's you see it in in multiple groups of people. So especially among like uh, seeker sensitive churches, a lot of mega churches, the, the the way that they teach the gospel, the way that they teach about Jesus, is that he was just this really nice guy, you know, and he just kind of walked around, and he loved everybody, and he's just great, man, um, which is true to a certain extent, right? Jesus came into this world and died for us, so there is no greater example of love than, than giving up your life. I, You know, perfectly legitimate biblical understanding. But Jesus had no problem calling out nonsense when he saw it. And throughout the Gospels, you see him uh, arguing with um, the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And uh, let me let me come up with a few examples. So in Matthew twenty three, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. And by the way, just so you understand, these are like the, the the scholars of the day, the religious leaders. You know, this would be the equivalent of walking into a church and calling your pastor <laughs> a, a hypocrite or a liar. You know, so this is deeply, deeply offensive. What he's doing, you know, people didn't do this <laughs> for the most part, right? This was not how you got along in society. You're going to have a bad time if you do this. Um, in John eight forty four, again, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He says, you're of your father, the devil, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me. That's just so amusing. Just the, the, the contrast between what people think and what actually happens. Um, in Matthew twelve thirty three through thirty seven, Jesus talks about uh, you shall know a tree by its fruit. The implication being that um, if you're a bad tree, you're going to produce rotten fruit. <laughs> um, he calls calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Um, he also says, by your words, you'll be justified; by your words, you will be condemned. Uh, this is very—I mean, this is very clear language, right? That, like, in in other words, there's consequences to what you say and do. Uh, you're a hypocrite um, you don't know what you're talking about uh, in Matthew 12 5 again talking to the 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 Pharisees he says have you not read which is incredibly condescending because that's all these guys do is read the law right all <laughs> they do is is study and interpret the Old Testament and in the ancient world this was this was a really important aspect of their their honor and shame culture and our the guest we had a few weeks ago JP holding It's written a lot about this, but there's this concept in the ancient world of uh, challenge riposte, and it's basically this idea of like a verbal joust, you know? So you would get into an argument with someone publicly, where like this is the setting where that would be appropriate, and the art of the insult in that sense was very, very uh, important, you know? So if you could win an argument in this setting, this boosted your honor rating, and this is what Jesus is doing in these confrontations um, with the Pharisees is is right right they ask him a loaded question and then he flips the question on its head and they look stupid as a result of that <laughs> you know yeah sure. um, so anyways i'm 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 rambling a little bit my my point here is that jesus loves us came to the world to die for us 100% true but this idea that that he was a nice guy and a pushover it's obviously false and then of course there's the flipping over of the money changers tables in the temple i mean this is like this is so deeply offensive and and, and if you're wrong, it's totally inappropriate, right? Now he wasn't wrong. So that's that's why it worked. Um, but this idea that a lot of modern churches push is like, oh, we're just supposed to be nice all the time. And I think that the point that it's illustrating is that you need to be very forceful in standing up for what's true, um, though you're supposed to do that with love. And, and the reason I think this is even more important, this is the final thing I'll say before I let you talk again skeptics of Christianity will use this. They will use this against us. And interestingly, a lot of them grow up in these kind of these, these seeker sensitive churches, they leave their faith and then they use this, um, this kind of this misperception of Jesus. And they say, well, you know, you're not allowed to say anything about homosexuality, for example, um, because God was love. You know, what would Jesus do, man? Would Jesus be as mean and as judgmental as you are? And that, to a lot of modern Christians, because they have this misunderstanding, they go, "Well, well I guess I should just be quiet, and I, I can't say anything. You know, I have to be, I have to be meek and passive." Um, and that's clearly not what the Bible's saying. But go, no. Bo, go ahead. what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I have lots of thoughts on them. First of all, I think you're you're right. The way I always case this one is, Jesus wasn't nice; he was kind. Jesus isn't nice; he is kind. And there's a huge difference between the way that we look at niceness and the way we look at kindness. So even the way we n- commonly use the word kind now, it's almost uh, a synonym for nice, but it's not. Kind is. Uh, let me let me put it in a in a modern example. So I'm going around. Uh, and I mean, as disgusting as the sound, I have a, I have a booger on my face. Nice is this idea, okay, we're going to just turn our head, put it down, put it up, pretend that doesn't exist. Kind is the person who comes and says, hey, you know, you got you got something on your face there. Um, and then if you don't get it the first time, continues to say no, no, like, you know, to the right or to the left or whatever. There's just a quick example of the difference between nice and kind. Now, what would you rather a person be? I think most people, well, I I don't know anymore, but at one time, most people would rather somebody be kind. Jesus is kind, but kindness is sometimes pointing out or pressing at the sore spot in order to make it not sore anymore. One of the best examples of this is Jesus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus and the woman at the well, however you want to case it. This is John 4. And... I just I find it so interesting uh, give you just one example go call your husband Jesus says and come back here I don't have a husband Jesus says you've s- said correctly you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now um, we'd we you could even use the word the man you're shacking up with now is not your husband what is actually happening in this if you read the whole entire passage in context is Jesus. Is actually pressing every spiritually sore spot of this woman in order to bring her to repentance. He's doing the kindest thing that he can do for this woman. But it's not nice. And that's just a uh, that idea between niceness and kindness. Jesus is kind, not nice. I'll give another quick example. This is John 1. And I just want you to get the idea of this. Whenever you're talking about Jesus is a nice nice dude, kind, not nice. So um, this is John 1, verse 40. Uh, Andrew, Simon, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his brother, Simon, Simon Peter, and told him, We have found the Messiah, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, when he sees Simon... You are Simon, son of John. I think I'll call you Peter. (laughs) And what happens here if you actually connect the Gospels is Peter is like, this dude's weird. And you actually find this back out, back out, back. um, One of the best examples of this. And let me make sure I'm not missing the quotation because it's really fascinating if you actually follow uh, what's going on here. So if you go back to Matthew four and Luke four, you'll have other variations of the story of how John and Jesus meet. Luke four is the most interesting because you have John one where Peter meets Jesus and, or Simon, we'll use it for this example. Simon meets Peter and he says, Hey, yo, Peter, you're going to be the rock on which I build this church. Um, Changing his name right there. Think about how awkward that would be. And then you have, if you combine that with Luke 4, you actually find this, that Simon Peter does not actually follow Jesus at first. It would seem to be he's a little bit scared off until the episode in Luke 4 where they cast their net on the opposite side of the boat that they've been casting all night, and it's at that point that Peter becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, why am I saying all this? It's a little rambling. I, I just want to point out and back you up on this. Like Jesus is not a nice dude. Um, some would even say, like modern times, is a little soci- socially awkward. He's the person who comes through in, and like instead of pretending a, the white elephant isn't in the room, I mean, he, he's the guy who's going to point out the white elephant, <laughs> and that it's kindness because we don't have to pretend anymore. Anyway, I, there, there we go. I just, just went on it. I just totally back you up on that. A couple of other examples that get me going on that one. Do you, I mean, I feel like I've already given another whole point, but would you, would you like to go with another one of yours or want me to go? Uh, just one final thing I'll say. And then
0: you can, it technically is your turn. So it's uh... No, I just that w- that was I my just last talked one. right over you. So you it's <laughs> okay. It's perfectly fine. This is great. I the one thing I would add to what you just said is that this is why I think the gospel is so deeply offensive to people, especially today, because when you confront people, and just to give one specific example, I was talking to someone a while back about pornography, and um, I, I was it, do- it doesn't matter. I was just saying I don't use this anymore. I don't need this anymore. Uh, I have no desire for it because it's it's poison for your soul basically. And I said, um, it's, it's the equivalent of cheating on, on your spouse or your, or y- yeah, it's, it's the equivalent of cheating. And the person I was talking to was just blown away by this. And they were like, what, like how that's, that's ridiculous. And, and they were sort of backed into a corner and they don't like that. You know, no one really does when you're confronted with your, with your failings. Um, but the overall point I would make is like, the, like, The gospel and then the specific teachings and the expectations that jesus lays out for us are very offensive people do not like this one bit and i think this is what we're outlining here right is that you know being confronted with the truth it's very unpleasant sometimes though though very necessary but i'm done uh what's your next point
1: well it kind of goes right up right with you um this idea of life's purpose um you will hear this multiple times throughout a person's life. Like, I just don't know what God wants me to do. I just, I don't know. I don't know. And and, and it kind of goes hand in hand because we actually just, look, I, this is going to sound bad and you're going to love it or hate it, but we use the Bible as a talisman, as something to give us permission or to guide us. And we forget that the whole entire purpose of this, the whole entire purpose of redemption is putting us back into God's plan, redeeming us to God's purpose. So, whenever you're talking about your life's purpose, how it's going to look could go a thousand ways. But what's at the core of it? It's actually actually pretty, pretty clear and pretty quick in scriptures. Matthew 28. Hey, everything's mine. Jesus says, "All authority's been given to me in heaven and on earth." go make disciples, go teach people, go engage with people. I mean, that's that's a pretty easy one. I'm going to give a couple other ones. I don't want anybody to ever think, think that I say the same thing over and over again. Uh, My, Micah six eight. Uh, man, uh, mankind, he has told each of you what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? Act justly. Love faithfulness. And walk humbly with your God. Um, that one's kind of clear, right? I mean, that's that's right there. I'm going to give it just a couple more, and then I'll go right back over to you. Get any thoughts that you might have on it. But 1 Corinthians 8.3 is another one. And, of course, always take these things in context. This is just quick fire uh, ministering here. But if anybody loves God, he is known by him. There we go. How did Jesus sum it up? Love God with all your heart, with everything you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, That's how we find that redemption path in in the sense of being reconnected to original purpose. And from that, we have a choice what we're going to do with it. James 4 8, like I've said a couple episodes ago, my life first, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's more in the context but my whole purpose of that is the bible is clear what is our life's purpose pursue god go after him in his ways see how that manifests in our lives and trust him with it i'm not saying don't consult god but you know should i have a strawberry pop tart or a maple pop tart today. Um, you know, God's not a magic eight ball. Is what I gotta say about that.
0: That's so good. This ties into what my next one, um, and these these overlap perfectly. But the 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 saying that quote God told me, um, I hate this so much. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. And it usually ties into, God told me thus and so about my life purpose or thus and so about what you need to do next in your life, uh, what college you should go to, should you go be a missionary, blah, blah, blah. Um, Nowhere in the Bible will you find any sort of commentary that says, you, person reading this, uh, God's going to tell you in a still small voice, or you're going to have a dream, or you know there's going to be some special way that god interacts with you regularly to tell you what you need to do in life um the way I, the way i like to put this and it's it's actually a quote from a theologian named Justin Peters but what he says is this he says if you want to hear god speak audibly read your bible out loud <laughs> <laughs> um and and it's it's great and the, just some scriptural support for this so second timothy 316 basically says scripture is sufficient for everything that you need, right? For, for, for correction and for learning and all, all of these specific things. I'll, I'll bring up the verse in a second. I don't have it right in front of me. But the basic idea is read your Bible. And as you were talking about that that verse in James, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Um, there's another theologian I like. His name's is v- uh, Vody Bauckham. And the way he summarizes this is read your Bible, learn to think biblically. And as you, like, as you read your, as you read your Bible every day and you start to internalize what it says, your perspective changes and you start to understand how you're supposed to behave in the world. And you gave some, some great examples, right? Make disciples, you know, do this, do that. But you start to think about your place in the world and your behavior in terms of, does this bring me closer to God? Am am I doing what God commanded me to do? And things start to become clear, and then when you add in the the fact the fact that you're supposed to pray every day, <laughs> you know this is your communication with God. It's not a conversation. That's explicitly not what I'm saying. It's exactly the opposite. You hear a lot of the same televangelist types. They will say, you know, uh, prayer is your conversation with God. You know, you talk to Him and He talks back. What you don't think He talks back to you? No, He doesn't. That's not that's not what's in in view here in the Bible. Um. But, but i'll I'll stop there that that's my my overview of that. God doesn't tell you anything in this kind of like magic genie whisper in your ear kind of way,
1: yeah, and I'll go right through there. I mean, there's been times in my life where um like whenever I was going home from a mission trip to New Mexico, um I knew in my heart and I would only way I know how to voice it to somebody is I heard God say you will move there. Um but it's not like I heard an audible voice. It was in my heart that like, and like I hate using words like this, your sometimes like your gut, whatever, people will use these kind of terminologies. But let me, the scriptural reference, since we're always, first and foremost, we're going to the scriptures, James 1, 5, 6. Uh, James 1, 5 through, through 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And the reason why I read that last part, too, is, you can ask God all day long for things like, Oh God, I just, I I need enough money to pay my bills at the end of the month, whatever. Um, You know, (laughs) it's probably going to be the answer. If you're not working, might need a good job. Um, Or if and the reason why, like there's also another thing, like uh, this, this idea of God helps those who helps themselves. I get where people have that rooted from. That is not scriptural. What is scriptural it are, are different things throughout the scripture talking about. Um, basically if you don't work, you don't eat. The point of this being is that if you lack wisdom, if you really have in, in anything you should consult God first, but the way he's going to answer you, once again, I mean, you've already brought it up with the, with, uh, this know your Bible. Uh, if you want to hear God's voice, uh, read the Bible out loud. I like that one. That's a good one. Um, There's a good pre-King James version of the Bible that has, um, uh, what is his name? Um, Is it Earl K. Jones? That's not right. The voice of Mufasa is reading. uh, Anyway, that's on Audible. Um, The point of this is, is like, this is a lifestyle. This is life's purpose to pursue God. Where we come into problem is whenever we're trying to microwave it and get ahead of the line, so to speak, um, and bypass the scriptural discipline that God does call every believer to, um, including those with special needs. There are a lot of resources, especially today for the special need person. If you have, like, I have a lot of people who have dyslexia, uh, that I talk to, we have audio Bibles, um, you know, for the blind, there's Braille Bibles. Uh, for the person who speaks a whole another language, almost every single language it has been translated, to uh, something over 4,000 languages. What is my point in all this? Is If you want to pursue God, all the avenue is there. So if you're not pursuing God, if you're not pursuing the purpose He's already laid out for you, eh, maybe you don't actually want to pursue Him. Okay. Oof, man, I'm like on it today.
0: Yeah, we're we're bringing it out of each other, I think is what's going on. Um, I would just add, before we wrap up, and, and you can give another one if you have another one. Uh, the problem with this whole God spoke to me thing is it basically, it removes any restraints or any check on people saying things that are outrageous or foolish in God's name. So... You know, you will see these preachers, these televangelist people, like, uh, who's another one? Like Beth Moore is another great example where she'll get up in front of thousands of people and she'll say, you know, I was having a conversation with God and he told me to brush this man's hair. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this clip, now, why would the creator of the universe tell you to go brush a stranger's hair? Like what what purpose does that serve? What what benefit do you get out of that? Does he get out of that? It, it, the, right? There's no There's no point to it. But when the Bible is our foundation and the things we believe and the things we do are grounded in the scripture, that's all our behavior can be grounded in is is what the Bible teaches us, right? So there are definite limits on what you can say and do. And nowhere does the Bible say anything stupid like that, like go brush a stranger's hair or, uh, you know, I'm going to help you pick out a Thanksgiving turkey because, you know, kind of like your Pop-Tart example, you know, it's just... God guides our paths through the scripture and through praying but it's not like man I really need a good parking spot at the gym Jesus please be but, you know it's just it it just so trivializes God and the Bible. It, it like, it becomes kind of a joke. It's just like this modern self-help sort of, you know, I've got a, I've got a cheat code on my video game kind of a thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a tale. Tell- I mean, a lot of, sadly, if we really reflect with the way that we use the scriptures and I'll say even things I've done in my past, or maybe even, I mean, there's some things like I, I can remember just a few weeks ago, again, so frustrated, uh, about being broken down and really kind of being aggravated at God, knowing full well the fact that like can God miraculously save the truck from doing that? Sure. Is he going to? Not unless it's his will for something like that to happen. Um why why do I even bring that up? Because like, you know, we're talking about this and I want the listeners to know like it's normal and it's natural to have this talesman idea of a deity. But if we really want to pursue Jesus, if we really want to know his truth and apply it to our life, he is not a tailsman. He is not a lucky rabbit's foot. He is not a lucky penny. He is the creator of the universe, redeemer through love, through grace. But there is a standard, because if there were no standard, there would be no need of redemption. So think about that one for a moment. You know, talk about nice guy versus kind guy. Kindness is Jesus made the way for us to be restored to a right relationship with God, to come into it. Nice would have been like, oh, it doesn't matter. No, no, kindness is, no, justice matters. Accountability is still true. But I also paid the price. It's a beautiful thing whenever you really stop and think about it and stop trying to oversimplify it. Wouldn't you say, Cameron?
0: I would. I would. By the way, I've actually heard uh someone at Bethel Redding, which is like a major charismatic church, actually describe Jesus as the genie from Aladdin. <laughs> so this is this is a real thing. There are really influential people that say a lot of dumb things. So it's important that people understand this. But I'll I'll stop cuz I've been going on. Do you have another one for us?
1: Well, you know, if we're going to just do some softballs today, um <laughs> <clears throat> and this is just going to make everybody mad. Uh Uh-oh. the trinity is not actually in the Bible.
0: Oh, sir, sir. <laughs> sir, you better be very careful here.
1: <laughs> now, not that Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean Matthew 28:19 once again. Uh John 10:30, I and the Father are one. Uh you know, I'm not saying that how it's used is not necessarily there. What I'm saying is, is this, the term Trinity itself. Uh, here's another one. 1 Corinthians eight, uh, six. Yet for us, there is one God, the father, all things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Also, you can go to Genesis one, John one, you'll find all of, all of these different images of where absolutely what we term as God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all there together, the Spirit of God. What the problem is, is the Trinity is an idea and a terminology created fairly early on in the church. It's about 350 AD or so to about 415, 450 that this becomes kind of cemented although the idea of Trinity had been thrown around much further, much earlier than that. Um, it's supposed to help us understand how God, to our point of view, looks multifaceted. But I feel like, especially in these latter days, the Trinitarian debates are almost useless because... Just to think of a simple illustration for this, there's three lines of a triangle. Take away any one of those lines and that triangle doesn't exist. And in your geometry class, you'd say line one, line two, line three, whatever, line A, B, C, whatever. So, and I don't want to oversimplify this because it's actually one of the great phenomenon. But I will say this the way that the Trinity is oftentimes presented can be quite troublesome for some people to understand and to grasp. And so what I like to tell people is this. The fact is God, creator of universe, has presented himself this way. And there's lots of different terminology you can use. Uh, One of the most common, of course, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one of the most common ways to say it. But it doesn't change change the truth of what is. That God is God. Hear us, O Israel, God is one, one. An Old Testament reference right there. So it's not like God has split personality here. But God has manifested himself in order for us to have any type of understanding of him this way. So my whole thing is this. I'd love to hear how you actually feel about it. But if you're a Christian and you're struggling with the idea of Trinity, stop using the word for right now. Let God be who He is. And then after afterwise, you can go back to the idea of Trinity and try to um, because I mean it's important to have common language, right? But I've just seen so many people trip over, two terms trinity or the oneness of god and realize these are just terms what we need to be focused on is who god is revealed to through scripture who just gonna make everybody mad today that's what i'm planning on doing all right cameron i may have made you mad too let's hear it i'm so mad um <laughs> no no i would
0: i would say i'm definitely a trinitarian i think there's pretty clear um scriptural support for that doctrine I think what you're saying—that's true, though—is that we often develop language to describe doctrines after the fact, which right, is yeah, sure. which is okay. So if you read, if you read like um, different church councils, or you read texts that became influential after the Bible, after we already established the mm-hmm. canon, um, we have ways of talking about things. To describe what's in the bible even though the bible may not specifically describe them that way and the trinity is a great example and the i've seen people abuse this um for example like when it comes to the trinity people will say well i only use language that's in the bible and the word trinity ain't in the bible therefore it's not a biblical doctrine but the word bible doesn't show up in the bible either and you use the word bible to describe the bible. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's an example. You know, um that's the only point that I would stress is that sometimes especially cuz we're all speaking English, which they did not speak in the 1st century or the 2nd century, just in case you were wondering. Um the way we describe the text or the describe our core beliefs um it it might be different than the way they would have described it in the 1st century in Koine Greek or in Hebrew. Um, but that doesn't mean you're talking about something fundamentally different. That's the thing that I would stress.
1: Yeah, no, and 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 for me, the core of of my issue here is that I've seen so many people stumble over this. So many people stumbling. Uh, Over the idea of Trinity, where my thing is this, especially as a a teacher of the word of God, there are times where it is incumbent upon us to back off of theological terms, just teach what's what's in the Bible in the sense of using the scriptures to back up the scriptures. And then we can get back to this is common language. But do you see how uh, something that is common language um, you know, that's like one word to explain a very complex system that runs throughout the entirety of scripture. Um, and that's my problem is that I am seeing, especially right now, and we're, we're Bible illiterate or theologically illiterate, um, in the Western world, those who have a fir- firmer grasp on some of the language that is, and I'm talking about all the ologies, uh, Trinity just being the uh, sacred horse that I decided to stir the pot with today. Um, there's there's this idea if you if you can't explain something, then you don't understand it yourself. It's something that's said in in scholarly world, I'm talking about you know the five dollar worlds and stuff. You know this because of some of the other work that you do. If you can't explain it then you don't understand it. And that's my whole thing with Trinity is that I've just seen so many lay people, people who seem to be hungry. I mean, I am not the judger of hearts, but they're tripping up over, um, just the term Trinity. Um, and very few people are taking the time to truly explain and go through, uh, Trinity with them through, God, this, this, uh, the image that God presents of himself. Um, so that's, that's my whole thing is that I, I just see so often a bit of laziness on the part of, uh, scholarly teachers or, or trained teachers or people who hold, hold teacher type positions. Um, and that's where I, I come into issues is with the failure to adequately go into the weeds with people and help them understand something, and just expecting people sometimes to understand a phrase or a terminology, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I, I'm a, it's a little rambling. I don't want it to go on forever. But does that does that make sense where I'm coming from from the angle I'm coming out here?
0: Totally, and I think that's probably another one that's worth its own show
1: because. <laughs> yeah. Because
0: yeah. what, what, what you're saying, I mean, there's you're saying a lot, but you, you're basically saying people need to be taught what particular doctrines mean. And, and how do you get from the starting point to that conclusion? You know, like, like yeah. how do you read the Bible to get there? Um, are there any clues from history that can help us sort of reconstruct what the early church did? Like, how did they reach the idea of a Trinity? Or um, any any number of concepts could work. but But I think I get what you're saying. Um, no, you, you
1: did it. You, you summarized it quite well. And I appreciate that.
0: That's, that's what I'm here for, man. This is what I do. Um, I've got one more and, uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I, maybe you disagree with me. I'm not sure. Um, the idea of speaking in tongues. All right. And I, the strictly speaking, this is in the Bible, but our modern understanding of it and our application of it, I think is totally unbiblical and, and frankly, absurd, because the way—the churches that I grew up in, as Pentecostal churches, the idea was like, well, the Holy Spirit comes over you, and you just, you just can't control yourself, and you start to babble in this made-up language. Um, they wouldn't describe it as made-up language. They, it's, it's your spiritual language. But it, it's not a recognizable language. It doesn't make sense to anybody else. You know, it's just babbling. Now, in the Bible, like in Acts chapter 2, um, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes— you see people speaking in tongues technically, but they're speaking human languages. The, the interesting thing here, though, is that you have you have Jews, like uneducated Jews, speaking languages, dozens of languages of people from all over the Roman Empire. So these people are present and this is happening, and they're going, "Wait a minute! Aren't these like, aren't these Galileans? How do they know? How do they know these languages? This is crazy!" And then Peter takes the opportunity to explain what's happening. So speaking in tongues occurs in the Bible, but it serves a specific purpose to confirm um, that the, the Holy Spirit has come after, right? After Jesus comes to, comes to earth, does his work, goes back up, Holy Spirit's here. And this is a, a very strong confirmation that, that this has happened. And in the modern church, especially the ones that I grew up in, and this freaked me out as a kid, man. I mean, you're like 11 years old and there's people, grown adults, who are just like running around babbling and they're, they're keeling over because like, like, like they're heaving. And this is supposedly because God has just overwhelmed them. And it's just very frightening to look at, you know? And I remember getting older and starting to read the Bible for myself. I'm like, man, they, they have just so badly screwed this up, you know? Cause like in its, in its proper context, speaking in tongues makes sense. But especially in Pentecostal churches that like, they just get off in these goofy I don't know if heretical is the right word, but, like, not biblical. Like, just, just really odd theology. But what, what, what's your take on this?
1: Well, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14 is a very interesting one. Um, this is actually the order of church meetings, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. So I'm just going to cover right there, you know, you're talking about tongues tongue specifically. But you think about how far, far off base the modern church is. Just hear this. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together... Each one, okay, members of it, should have a hymn or a teaching or a revelation, uh, another tongue or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up the body. This is also where uh, Paul is also the one who writes. Um, I prefer you to teach than to ever speak in tongues, um, which is very interesting. But but talking about the laying out of tongues, verse 27, and if anyone speaks in another tongue, what we would call tongues, uh, There are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Okay, so that directly references over to Romans 8, uh, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings is kind of where that idea comes from. Um, and he who God who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is high religious wording as far as like this is the stuff that gets people uh, somewhat irked. In the sense of um, the Spirit knowing groanings and all this, But but it all stems back to this. And we've said it multiple times through this particular episode. What is the pursuit of the individual's heart is if it's to show off. Well, Paul in first Corinthians just taught, Hey, if there's no interpreter, keep your tongues between you and God. So whatever tongues is or isn't, there's a precedent there that, and, and I get the reference points that you're making. Um, if, if somebody has never experienced what, what you're talking about, Cameron, um, it's disconcerting, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but but my point is, what is the point of like even church itself? What we, our idea of church. What is the point? It is the building up of believers, the maturity of the Christians. Ephesians four uh, lays this out very perfectly. So, what is the conclusion then? And this kind of leads right into that Trinitarian debate um, as well as far as using language and not making sure that the people in the congregation actually understand the language we're using. What God wants first and foremost is us to be connected to him, to understand, to follow. And if what we're doing is doing differently than that, then we've got a real issue on hand. I mean, haven't we seen that through all these points of it's not in the Bible? Isn't the whole point of it is we've just made uh, we've made assumptions, uh, we've made summarizations, and I think at the heart of it all is that we have quit at times to keep going to the Word of God and letting it teach us. Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: I think you summed it up pretty well, right? The the overall theme of every episode of this show, but this one in particular is make sure that what you believe is grounded in the Bible. Cause that's, that's really all you have as a Christian. If you don't have that, you just have people making stuff up and doing what they want and however they feel is the truth. That kind of, that kind of thing. Um, Which is stupid, you know. What's the point of that? That you know, you can do that anyway. You don't have to have Christianity to do that. Just you know, make up what you want to make up. (laughs) Um, That's good. I think we could do a bunch more of these, but uh, these these are the ones that have been on my uh, on my mind lately because they're all they're all very uh, they're all very frustrating. But um, thank you guys, as always, for joining us. Hopefully, you got something good out of this, and if we made you mad. Maybe you'll uh, you'll look up what we said. <laughs> um, before we go, I just want to recommend one article that that I read in preparation for this this episode. This is an article by uh, Kosti Hinn, who is Benny Hinn's nephew. And Benny Hinn, of course, is you know the the modern day prosperity preacher. He claims to be able to heal people. He's been caught in fraud multiple times, uh, <laughs> like having prearranged miracles and this kind of thing. But this is an article at the Gospel Coalition. It's called The Prosperity Gospel Slam Dunk Verse. And it's really good. It's just a breakdown of that, my my first point, The Prosperity Gospel. So I'd recommend that uh, that you read that article. And then before we go, Robert, do you have any uh, any suggestions that you want to point people to?
1: Yeah, I mean, any of these topics, anything that you want to research to, um, there is a really good resource. It's called openbible.info. And it In it, it says, what does the Bible say about, and you can put in any topic you want to. And yeah, a lot of times it's going to give you just hot topic scriptures. And that's whenever you go and read it in the full context and the chapter that it's in. And sometimes you need to go further on in the chapters around it. And sometimes you need to go into the entirety of the book, depending on what subject you're talking about. But it's openbible.info. And I have actually found it one of the best tools for quick referencing. And then I've got one more. Um, an interesting thing about Joyce Meyer, it's the person you mentioned um, earlier. Um, it's it's a really interesting thing. If you look up Joyce Meyer and the Prosperity Gospel, there's several articles that, that will come up, um, and you can actually hear her in her own voice, um, rethinking the prosperity gospel. Um, and it's why I find that one very interesting is you have a person who has been on this side of the fence, so to speak, and the thought processes of coming out from under that. Um, I find that very, very, thought-provoking for myself of why was it ever a thing in the first place? Um, and why is it it's still a thing? But this is just one person's journey. So you can just Google Joyce Meyer and um, Prosperity Gospel and uh, look at some of the articles that come up there. Very good. Thank you guys for joining us as always. We'll be back next week
0: with another non-controversial topic to dive into. Until then, God bless you guys. We'll see you then.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Open Church Podcast. For more information or how to engage, please visit us at openchurchonline.com. We'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, BeAwesomeReadBooks.com.